Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast, presented to you from Cape Town here in the Western Cape, South Africa. The podcast is presented with a view to providing a platform and voice for built environment professionals and interest groups who are working towards transforming the places and spaces here in South Africa. It's dedicated to the individuals and community groups who are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast and the third of our four episode series and deep dive into net zero carbon buildings here in South Africa. Today's in-depth conversation brings back the public and private sector perspectives. We hear from Megan Sager from Sustainable Solutions based here in Cape Town. We hear from Chilo Lombe from Solid Green Solutions based in Johannesburg. And we hear from the city of Cape Town's Mary Hall and Leslie Sabanda. And as always, Hlengiwe Khradebe from the Sustainable Energy Africa will be providing the expert view and summary towards the end of the podcast. This is quite a lengthy episode and in it we consider the changes that are going on in the building sector, within the private sector and asking the question, can it handle the change and what has been the response to date? Who have been leading, who has been following in terms of the different sectors and some of the major players? We talk about some of the financial considerations, the incentives and the regulatory environment and how that's impacting on the market's ability to respond to what government is asking. And we'll also think about data and the work that the city of Cape Town in particular has been doing, trying to track some of the data inputs to monitor and evaluate the performance of buildings and of precincts. We also consider what some of the consumer behaviour changes may be within different sectors once the energy efficiency of buildings is better understood, communicated and marketed. At the end of the episode, you can hear how you can get involved and be part of our webinar where we'll be inviting all of the guests who've taken part on our podcast series to be part of a panel and take your questions and respond to the questions you might have that have occurred from this podcast series. So please listen to Chlengiwe at the end of the podcast to hear about more details about how to get involved. In the meantime, enjoy the episode, enjoy the content, enjoy the perspectives of our experts. So it's just coming up to 5.30 on April the 6th here in Cape Town. Welcome to the third episode of our Roadmap to Net Zero Carbon Buildings by 2030. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our colleagues. We have up in Johannesburg, Chilo Lombe. Chilo, how are you keeping? Are you well? I'm very good. Thanks, Peter. And yourself? All good this side. Thanks, Chilo. It's really great to have you on board. Nice to have a voice from up in Gauteng there. Uh, and down here in Cape Town, the rest of our, our participants, we have four voices, two from the city, that specifically Mary Hall. Mary, how are you keeping? Hi, Pete. I'm good. Enjoying the last bit of warm weather here in Cape Town. And uh, Leslie, Leslie Sabanda rejoining us. Heard from you in episode two. and Welcome back for episode three. Leslie, how are you keeping? Thank you, Piet. I'm doing well. Like Mary said, we're enjoying the last bits of summer here in Cape Town. So yeah, look excited for the podcast. Going to hear from the private sector today and representing part of that, we have Megan Sager. Megan, how are you keeping everything well your side? Absolutely, very well. And uh, looking forward to discussing some of the opportunities for the private sector and policymakers supporting the net zero carbon transition this evening because, uh, of course, this is not time just of challenge, but also opportunity. 
And last but not least, Lengiwe Hradebe. Lengiwe, you've been the anchor, you've been the rock around which these episodes have been A, prepared and B, executed. How have you been keeping? Did you have a good Easter weekend? Hi, Pete. I'm doing very well. I, I had a good Easter, quite slow and relaxed, but it was good. And I'm looking forward to this discussion. It's been a while since we recorded. It feels like it's been months. <laughs> It's like a BRT bus. You wait for for, for days, and, and then they all come at the same time. But indeed, I mean, this is the this is the third third episode that we're recording. Uh, we had a bulletin right at the beginning, um, so this is the fourth time recording, and we've still got a couple more to come. So really, really excited to talk about this idea of um, the viability, the value chain, and the changes within the private sector to handle the change. And how the national program that has been described over the last couple of episodes is being dealt with by the the private sector, and how they they're the different financing mechanisms. So, Megan, I'm going to start with you. Maybe you can give us a sense of the sort of the size of this uh, the built economy and the sector that we're dealing with, and some of the challenges that the sector is having to deal with at the moment. I mean, clearly, this is not uh, business as usual. Um, and even though that the, the sort of sign off for the program would have come before COVID, I mean, that has come and really thrown a, a, a real spanner in the works. Or does it start to give us, as you, as you quite rightly said, uh, opportunities for us to think about in our recovery efforts? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think you know, one of the, the pivotal aspects of the COVID transition has been the way in which it has forced us to reconsider the built environment. So homes are no longer just um, places to rest and play, but also increasingly working spaces. Office buildings are no longer in the demand that they were a year ago. So fundamentally, the entire built environment landscape is shifting to accommodate the new lifestyles that we've taken on. And what that's doing is having a profound impact on um, on urban footprints. So we we're starting to see very high um, vacancies in, in office buildings filtering through into amazing redevelopment opportunities in very well-located areas, some of which could well become affordable residential opportunities. So we, we're starting to see a, a transition within our cities that I think uh, in many respects is quite compatible with the larger sets of sustainable development goals and indeed achieve, achieving the Paris Agreement amongst the sustainable development goals. So a lot of opportunity. Um, in total, the construction and, and real estate sectors account for around 800 billion rand. So two very large sectors within the South African economy, jointly contributing almost 20% to GDP and very labor intensive. So, um, so if we think about the infrastructure-led economic recovery, it's about creating jobs. It's about greening the infrastructure and property assets that we have and creating new infrastructure compatible with the type of South Africa that is envisioned in the National Development Plan, which is both about inclusivity and about environmental sustainability. So we're seeing a confluence of factors in the, the market for property, which are really supporting both domestic and international policy goals, while at the same time offering us a mechanism for starting to move out of the recession which COVID has caused or deepened and allowing us to start think, thinking about green growth and what that means for our cities, 
our economies, our property developers. Um, one of the important and immediate consequences of COVID is that attention has shifted from greening new buildings to greening existing buildings. So with uh, COVID has come a, a slowdown in new investment, um, understandably given the economic impacts. And we've really started to think about how we approach optimization of our existing uh, built footprint so that we can lower the costs. And these are not just financial costs, but also environmental costs, because when we're efficient with energy and water, we're also efficient with the factors that determine the overall sustainability of our society. So we're seeing many interrelated factors that support the adoption of net zero carbon. What it hinges on, though, I guess, is really how we overcome the central barrier to net zero carbon, and that is the additional capital costs involved. And I guess this discussion will unpack that in greater detail. How has the sustainable solutions and the, the work that you've been doing with the market, how has that tried to look at what those opportunities and the engagements that you've had over the last 12 to 18 months, how, how have you seen those change? Yeah, so it's been very interesting and we've seen the changes filtering through from a range of clients. So one of the clients we work with has a portfolio of uh, rooftop solar assets and they've seen tremendous increases in the demand for solar energy as a less costly and green form of, of energy. So, uh, so although these are not necessarily assets owned by commercial and industrial customers, they form a very important part of an overall COVID response in that they help businesses become more resilient and, and lower their exposure to, to the rapid tariff hikes on the grid. So that's been one quite exciting response that we're really seeing demand for for alternative forms of, of uh, energy coming through, benefiting the take-up of renewable energy on sites that, that demand energy. So the whole embedded generation idea. The second opportunity that we've seen evidence of is this idea around repurposing existing buildings. So we've had some consortiums of property developers engage us in conversations about potentially buying up blocks of buildings in urban centers, including the city of Cape Town, with the express purpose of, of making these sustainable urban precincts, which tap into sustainable energy and water sources, often through some form of self-provision combined with municipal provision, and then offer a range of residential options. So converting Office, office space, which is currently underutilized or unutilized into uh, residential opportunities, which allow the emerging middle class and lower income people access to a part of the city that they've never been able to afford before. And Chilo, I say coming to you, you're based in a different ge- geographic area in a similar way to the work that Megan and the Sustainable Solutions are doing, Solid Green, who you are working with are driving a similar sort of partnership approach with the private sector there. I'm looking at your website, see you're almost at 100 certifications of green buildings there up in and around the Johannesburg area. How does the story that is being told by uh, Megan resonate uh, with the with the work that you're doing up there in Gauteng? It's, it's quite an interesting thing because I think we kind of, we straddle a couple of different um, different spaces, but like, 
with sort of the traditional certification, what we've seen is that a lot of parts of the market have gotten sort of very used to it. And, and, and what net zero has, what net zero represents now is this like stretch target that people used to talk about, um, a couple of years ago now being brought forward and being put kind of like in place. And what we've seen is, is a very big interest in it. But at the same time, we are struggling to get people to really understand that this, this, this means real change. You know, like these are not targets that are by any means like easy to achieve. And, you know, when you've got a very lofty goal, sometimes people might give up on the fact that oh, maybe it was too lofty. So it's probably come at the right time because the industry did need sort of a new kind of yardstick or a new element to, to achieve. For. So, you know, from a business point of view, it's great. We feel very much that there is um, an advance in the market and it's, it's definitely going to push, but it's, it's extremely challenging, you know? Um, and, and I think that that's the part that we often say to people that if you're doing this, you're going to do something completely new, something that even feels uncomfortable because on the back of net zero is not just, you know, like kind of like the offsets, it's reductions to levels that we hadn't seen before in, in, in terms of cons- consumption or usage. The main pushbacks that, that, that we're seeing is uh, in buildings is that the buildings buildings actually have to be designed very differently. We we happen to be in a very in a very advantageous climate when it comes to um, passive design and all of those type of things. But you know we've traditionally seen that most of the time people kind of they don't you know we don't design for for our climate. So the biggest one is that the buildings either have to look different or they have to cost a different amount of money. You know, like if you've got these big glass facades that we're used to seeing, it's either that glass facade is going to cost you a huge amount of money now because you're trying to go after a very much an increased efficiency level, or you have to design the building differently and not have the huge uh, facades and, and, and all of that. So, you know, clients love the idea of it. And what we're seeing is is, is more pushback from you know, the rest of the professional teams where we, we all have to step our game up to deliver what's required. I'm, I'm guessing it comes down to the bottom line, Chilo, not so. The, 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 can, it, can it work financially? And I suppose there's different ways of, of stratif- stratifying those costs, you know, small-scale intervention, medium, and then obviously whole, wholesale intervention. Are you seeing that the clients that you deal with are looking at a differentiated package or do you deal mostly with people who are looking from the very get-go with the new buildings. Megan talked here in Cape Town about a lot of people thinking more about the retrofit of existing. But again, I'm just trying to get a sense of the differentiation and the geography around the issues. Yeah, I think I think there's a there's a mix. We've got a we've got a couple of, of portfolio clients where they, they they're trying to see retrospectively whether or not they can they can uh, make the, the upgrades and and have like a long-term strategy to it. I think that part particularly appeals to to portfolio clients because you know the first couple of years you're just doing kind of the retrofits and reduction in consumption which essentially means that the you know you're saving money and then the and then it's, it's right at the end um we see those and then we also see kind of like the new large-scale developments where they're starting now and in in this is what 
people are, are looking for. So they have to start now and be trying to now make the current buildings that they that they're doing, um, you know, targeting net zero from from the beginning, which is sometimes a little bit more difficult because you don't have the the luxury of time and 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 sort of working out where you are and working your way your way up to it. That you, we actually have to be able to solve it now and, and and do it from there. And those are probably the ones that are looking at it and seeing it's the most to be the most difficult. Very, very interesting. And I mean, Megan, if I come back into your your space, and I know, I know you operate beyond Cape Town, but perhaps let's look at it by sector. Are you seeing differences between, for example, the commercial sector, the office space versus industrial? Or are you seeing across the board that people have got an interest in this? I'm thinking also of things like, uh, the, you know, the public sector, and we'll hear no doubt from Mary and Leslie what you know the city itself is trying to do in its own building ambitions within Cape Town, for example. But is there a difference between the different uh, sectors of the market and the different land uses, and how you're seeing either a leader or a follower uh, emerging within that uh, different sort of spaces? Yes. Well, uh, I guess it also comes down to to whether we're speaking about new or existing buildings. So um, as Chilo was speaking, I, I thought a little bit about the rollout of IFC's EDGE tool in South Africa, which has been tremendously successful in terms of accessing the mass market, residential market, and really just thinking about how relatively small financial incentives and working with key stakeholders um, being investors into that space resulted in quite a rapid transformation focused predominantly on the affordable housing market. I think there is a heightened awareness, particularly within the commercial and industrial sector at the moment. That's also the the sector which has got the most ready access to capital. So if we think about uh, individual homeowners, they would typically have less capital available to fit some of these improvements as well as less awareness generally about what net zero carbon means. So if we think about some of the industrial property funds, for example, I understand they're already looking at net zero carbon designs for new buildings or refurbishments to access funding through green bond capital raising or um, even arranging uh, green loans with uh, with DFIs that, that back, so development finance institutions that back net zero carbon properties or like the green flavor of the property. So I would say it is, it is focused on commercial and industrial property and it tends to be the larger um, investor into those properties that, that is generally the most aware and also the most readily able to, to implement the necessary changes. So I would typically think the growth points, the redefines, um, equitus, industrial property fund, you know, these are the guys who are, I guess, already seriously thinking about how to implement net zero carbon within their portfolios. And then, of course, there are some very progressive residential property investors like International Housing Solutions, IHS as we know them, um, as well as um, progressive lenders like Tuff, whom uh, Chile and I have worked together with, thinking about uh, the implications of regular conventional buildings for running costs and the impact of this on the affordability for the tenants that that live in these properties. So some of the most enthusiastic adopters of low carbon technologies and designs have been particularly these investors in uh, in the property space. Overall, I think it's important to draw a distinction between 
those who invest in property and those who develop property. So those who invest are in it for the long haul and are going to feel the impact of poor design and construction choices. And, uh, and I think that's a really important distinction to think about when we, we talk about uptake of net zero carbon. So really working with those um, institutions and those individuals who are going to feel, uh, feel those impacts and who therefore have the most incentive um, to, to change um, the buildings that they're living in, whether they own the buildings or whether they're working with a landlord who is uh, renting the property out to them. The the mention of the edge tool, um, maybe Chilo, can you just explain to us the the basis of the tool and uh, the edge? uh, Does it stand for something? How does it all uh, play out? And why is that such an important part of the, almost the appraisal and or certification? Yeah, so edge um, stands for excellence for design, greater efficiencies. So um, Edge Tool was designed by the, uh, or developed by the IFC, International Finance Corporation. And it, it very much started out as a, uh, a green building tool for emerging markets. So this was a way for, for the different, different markets to, well, emerging markets to, to start to sort of build green and certify green and, and, and all of that. It's, it's very simplified in that it just targets three key areas, which is energy efficiency, water efficiency, and then the carbon footprint of, of, of materials. So it's just three, three elements where you, you target a 20% improvement over your national baseline. I think where it's taken on some interesting importance in, in South Africa is that that's the primary way of certifying uh, residential properties. So a lot of the big uh, property developers now, that's, you know, if they want to, to build and say that their developments are green, they, they use the, the edge tool. You know, and that's, that's been linked to some interesting developments in, in South Africa. For instance, Bowen Properties now has an agreement with APSA where in terms of international speak, it's not, it's not actually a bond. It's a, it's a green, it's like a green mortgage, a green home loan. Um, where you get a couple of basis points saving if you stay with them. I mean, if you if you buy from them, based on the the, the fact that it's it's green. Within net zero, it's also something that has been um, identified as a a means to plug a very important gap that's in the market right now in the in sort of the the journey to net zero, which is the the technical appraisals that need to be done to see how far you are from net zero, what interventions might be there. Traditionally, you know, like we do very detailed energy modeling to to sort of look at the energy efficiency of a building, but that's not necessarily ac- accessible to the average person. So the, um, so the, the, the tool is an easier way to sort of get mass market adoption of energy efficiency that it's it's got a very simple energy modeling tool that you know you put in some very simple stuff and then it can give you some insights into how to improve energy efficiency which is the most important part of the net zero journey is that you have to actually reduce the the usage i'm going to ask mary now from the city of cape town from an official's point of view You've heard from Megan, you've heard from uh, Chilo in terms of talking about some of the, let's call it the big corporates, some of the clients who have got a portfolio of projects who are looking at this through a very sort of consolidated approach and viewpoint and a long-term view. 
what what is what is the city seeing and what is its, its responsibility mary in terms of trying to get this message to to everybody irrespective of the size of the uh, of the holdings any thoughts from your side and immediate reflection on what you've heard this evening it's certainly you know a really interesting space and i think it's great that the the leaders in the industry are already heading in this direction which means that the that everyone else has got a role model and um, kind of aspire to to head in that in that way. But I think, as a municipality, we have quite a challenge and and quite an interest another perspective in that we've got to support everyone heading in that direction and everyone going in that in that way. And the edge tool is an interesting segue because it's something that we are looking at as a way to demonstrate compliance with stricter building regulations and higher energy efficiency requirements, which is what we need to do if we're going to hit net zero carbon. But the reality is that 90% of the development approvals coming through don't do a modeling exercise. They do a very easy kind of tick box, steam to satisfy way of doing it. And to shift that market to using a modeled approach is quite a challenge. Not insurmountable, though, and I think, you know, Leslie and, and our team, we're working really hard together with the SA Buildings Program on the upskilling of those teams to, to try and see how we can shift to a much more performance-based approach rather than the kind of box-ticking area. So we fully support that we need to head in that direction, but I think the reality is it's a massive change for the majority of homeowners and the, the architects and design teams. So I think that's that's one area to remember. And then just in, you know, we're not, we're not going to get everyone on board unless there is policy support and policy certainty on what is required. You know, the other, the other really important thing, and I'm, I'm just going to do a little bit of a punt here, but I think Megan touched on it about the average homeowners, they're not empowered and they don't know about this stuff. And so one of the interesting projects we've recently done is a, a full-scale net zero carbon modeled house called My Clean Green Home, which was open at Greenpoint Urban Park for a month. And it's recently been up at Vangate Mall. And that was just an opportunity to demonstrate a range of design principles and technologies that go into making a net zero carbon home. And for me, the biggest take home was that for the first time, Cape Tonians could feel what it felt like to be in a net zero carbon space and to realize that it's not all or nothing. You know, the, the best for me was when people left saying, I've got so many ideas to now implement in my own home. And, you know, that's just a first step. I think we've got a long way to go, but I, but the the range is is that kind of engagement and bringing the public in. And on the, on the flip side is the policy and, and what we have to actually regulate to get people on board. So I think that for, for right now, that's what I have to reflect on based on the conversation so far. Leslie, anything from your side? Again, any, any additional dimension that you'd like to pick up from the city perspective? What came out strongly when uh, Megan and Chilu were talking about this idea of repurposing of existing buildings. And um, from a city perspective, it's something that we also focusing on. Because of COVID, we've started seeing this concept of adaptive reuse uh, really coming into, into play, uh, people demanding demanding buildings that are healthy buildings to look at. So adding to what we're trying to do in terms of energy efficiency, we're seeing that. And as a city, we are leading by example by ensuring that we lead us within the space in our own buildings. So policy certainty that Mary spoke to is work that's undergoing and that focuses mostly on new buildings. 
But then for the existing building sector, we're also looking at various uh, programs and we're in the process of formulating a strategy in terms of how do we start to make those changes within the existing building sector. I think the existing building sector is quite a big market. And so more and more our focus as a municipality um, is now on that. And that's where a lot of my work is now being focused on in terms of how do we, you know, make changes within the existing building sector to make those buildings much more energy efficient towards net zero carbon buildings, but then also making those healthy buildings for people to live and and work in. So I think that's more of the focus that we are at and which is in line with, I think, what... Um, Megan and Chilo alluded on that focus on existing buildings. Question back to Chilo and Megan around their perspectives. Um, you've heard from uh, Leslie and Mary the idea of the, the city trying to establish regulation and the policy as a framework to, I'm going to almost say de-risk some of the approach and the support to the private sector in the market. Does that policy help? I mean, often we hear that the private sector might push back against some of the regulation. Often we hear about things being over-regulated by a government. What is the sense there? How far should this, the city and regulations be pushing? And how, how much does that assist everybody saying, well, everyone's playing from the same rules of the game, um, but those rules might come with a cost? and might start to have unintended consequences. So maybe to start with you, Chilo, you know, from your perspective, does the policy help in the market transformation that we're looking at? Uh, does it go far enough? And is it the regulation that is required, the consistency that's required in order to get the job done? I think, you know, from the, the, the city side, I think maybe the biggest um, issue that, that we find is just the, the disparity in the various city um, policies, you know, working across the country, you know, what, what, what will be happening in Cape Town versus in Durban versus Johannesburg, Twani is, is, is very, very different. You do find that, I'm not just saying that because the guys are here, that, you know, like Cape Town is a lot more progressive, you know. And then there's there's, there's other places where, especially with like a, a different approach to something, if you have it, whether or not you can speak to someone at council that will say this is different, but it meets the intent and, and therefore. So I think consistency from the cities is probably the the biggest requirement from the private sector side, and then also ensuring that people within the city, that there is someone there with an understanding because, you know, we're going into what is at the forefront of sustainability anywhere in the world, you know? And, and so at councils, you need to have people there that are also kind of champions of this whole thing and, and, and being able to, to provide that. I think the legislation is good. The legislation helps to drive the, the, the minimum and if you drive the minimum, there's more people that can achieve at the other end. So, you know, it's just probably the biggest issue being that, you know, everything right now is geared to what is law now and what is understood. And now there's this big new thing. And it's great that it's it's coming in as legislation. I mean, that's that's the best way to to effect change. But it, it's the supporting elements around it uh, within and associated with the various municipalities is probably I've seen that as the biggest as the biggest risk because even if the you know the private sector and people sort of get 
an idea of what they need to do. You know, you still need you to pass your plans, pass council and things like that. And, you know, elements like, like feed-in tariffs and all of those type of things, you know, something interesting that's happened now is that ESCOM put out a very, I would say, a vague statement around um, additional costs for homeowners with, with solar. And there's been so much pushback in people's minds in the sense that they're like, they haven't seen the maths of it, but they're like, oh, there's no point in doing this. ESCOM is just going to charge us more. You know, I think things like that just need to be communicated in a way that people can actually understand. Because obviously the renewable energy offset is primarily solar. And if all of a sudden there's some new requirement or people think that they're going to pay more, which they really aren't if you if anyone explains it, but that's the end of perception. A few comments from my side. Um, you know, the, the ambition level of the regulation is, is the first thing to consider. So I think there is generally market consensus that for new buildings, the SANS 10400 XA energy efficiency regulations need to be lifted to reflect the evolution of practice. At the time they were introduced in 2011, they represented uh, somewhat stretchy targets for for developers and architects, but really these days um, many architects and developers are exceeding those standards. So um, so it's really keep making sure that our minimum building energy efficiency regulations reflect good practice and even encourage building beyond um, good practice. I think secondly then just thinking about where the costs of adhering to that regulation fall and whether there's adequate access to capital to absorb, absorb those extra costs for the segments and the property types being targeted by that regulation. So if we look at the property sector at the moment, you can imagine that, for example, a premium uh, commercial or industrial property is going to be funded far more easily uh, if it costs 5% more than, uh, than a gap market unit being sold into the residential market where a typical buyer is heavily constrained in terms of the access to a home loan even before that net zero carbon premium of 5%. So, you know, at the top end of the market where there's clear evidence demand for green buildings, it's, uh, you know, take-up is going to be far easier. So that's really where we saw a lot of the take-up for green star-rated buildings initially was in the highly rated office and, and retail um, segment of the commercial and industrial properties. So I want to be careful, I guess, then secondly, not just about the ambition level of regulations, but also the scope of coverage of those regulations. So are all properties going to be equally affected or are we going to think about a differentiated approach? And, uh, and if we do think about a differentiated approach, how do we create enablers so that parts of the market with economics that are less supportive and less access to capital are able to catch up. So if we say to begin with that we want higher-end commercial and industrial properties and residential properties to to achieve net zero carbon first, what are we doing at the same time to facilitate the transition for the affordable housing market or for the lower-end commercial and industrial market? So we can't we can't exclude them from the transition. We just need to think a little bit more creatively about setting and creating mechanisms so that we don't miss that mass market transformation. So that's really, I guess, one of the big risks from my perspective is that we don't have the right set of signals and incentives in place to enable 
a mass market transition outside of the high-end market. Because we've seen before that the high-end market you know, transitions quite easily on its own. Yes, there are challenges because of COVID that has, uh, I guess, delayed some progress, but it's also heightened investor awareness of environmental, social and governance factors, and that in some ways improves to capital for the larger guys that are um, focused on, on institutional investors. So I think we've got to work with uh, with the, the uh, banks and the other lenders to make sure that they can differentiate between a net zero carbon and a conventional building and that they're tracking that journey as it evolves so that they can help um, prospective developers and buyers and investors with absorbing that extra capital cost on the best possible terms. And then very importantly, and this is a neglected part of the conversation, is having the right market signals in place to enable traders in that market, by which I mean buyers and sellers in the market, to distinguish between a net zero carbon building and a conventional building. So you know, energy performance certificates have been tremendously successful in many other parts of the world in really creating a differentiated market and the, the importance of that differentiation cannot be overestimated because once you've got a property value premium attached to a net zero carbon building in any segment of the market, once we have a proven operational cost saving attributable to a net zero carbon building in any segment of the market, we then have a tool with which we can go to investors and say, you really should be putting all your cash into net zero carbon properties because they perform better. And that becomes really the pillar of the transition. So as much as we speak about barriers and opportunities, we also just need to think about information that is provided to the market and how something as simple as an energy performance certificate or a building energy rating can really facilitate um, good choices in the market by all of the participants in the property market whether they're individuals, big corporates, or SMEs for that matter, that that can really help us to achieve the outcomes that we're looking for. Interesting you say that, Megan. I mean, I'm just thinking about, uh, you know, over the last couple of weeks, looking at buying a, a new fridge or a new cooker and that type of thing. You see those energy efficiency standards, the stickers on on those goods, telling right. you it's a triple tri- A or if it's a B, C. And, you know, I'm thinking back to 15 years ago, I wouldn't even give that a thought. And now it becomes almost the primary driver of, of what you buy is based on, you know, the cost of electricity. And, and so I'm guessing what you're saying is in the same way when you're looking at purchasing or taking up another option on, on a rental, that's the type of sticker or the type of authentication you're looking at within the built environment. Absolutely, and I, I think that's so crucial. I mean, we know that ESCOM has um, has secured approval for a 15% tariff increase this year, which will impact all electricity users uh, tied into the municipal system through a 17.8% increase in July this year. This is not a cost that can be ignored. So make Making responsible choices in relation to energy efficiency and alternative energy choices starts to become central to good budgeting and financial decision-making for everyone. And really, I guess, net zero carbon needs to show its relevance to that financial decision. Let's, let's bring it back to the, the city perspective. And Mary, I'm going to again start with you, if I may. And, and, and having listened to the, the perspective shared by Megan and Chilo around 
the the transformation within that sector, the city's efforts. We've talked about the policy space and the regulatory that's emerging. Is it is this enough in your in your mind? And having worked within this space now for, for a number of years, do you think we're getting there? Uh, is there more that we should be thinking about as, uh, as as the city itself? How successful have we been? Do you think in terms of being able to support the transition that's that's unfolding? I think it's a slow project. I mean, it's a it's a big ambitious target that we're trying to achieve here. And I think there's a lot of work that happens in the background that's not particularly fun or exciting, but it's the it's the levers that make cities work. And it's a, it's the way that decisions get made at a at a government level. So I think this, you know, the the policies that drive better efficiencies in buildings and the bylaws that that kind of build on top of that SANS 10400XA that Megan mentioned. I think those are the ways that we kind of push industry in the right direction. And like Chilu said, you know, we've got to push the minimum guys with the expectation that other people will even exceed that. And what's really been fantastic about the SA Buildings Program is it's not just Cape Town. You know, it's all four metros. And so it's a message to investors that you're all going to have to go in this way. You can't escape to Durban or kind of decide decide to rather go to Joburg because actually we're all in it together. And it's cities pushing national government to also um, head in this direction. And I think we've we've seen... We've seen positive feedback from national government around the regulations um, as they start also realizing that we've got to focus on high performance and energy efficient buildings. Chilu mentioned the idea of this disparity between cities across the country. And I think this, this program and the way that all four cities are together also helps that disparity in that we're actually all in it together and we are trying, we're heading in the same direction. So hopefully that will evolve and many more municipalities will also will come on board. I think there's a lot of capacitation that still needs to happen. Um, there's a lot of uh, internal capacity building with our own staff that do need to understand because these are quite big leaps of of design, um, as Chilu mentioned, that we have to all or get on get on board, but I think the users also need to understand that these rules that there are rules that are in place that are not, you know, they have a context. And I think I I'm involved in the small scale embedded generation work within the city of Cape Town, and that comes up um, repeatedly where people think that the tariffs are wrong or the system is wrong or you know all the kind of um, checks and balances are are holding back. But I think the important thing to note is that Cape Town was actually one of the first cities that allowed um, solar PV to be connected to the network. And um, people were credited with uh, excess energy fed into the grid. There are obviously still challenges around um, how the systems work and technology is changing so fast that as as the sort of regulator, we have to try and keep up with that. But uh, but it, it's important to realize that we're also beholden to our regulations from national government. So while we're trying to push change and implement these things, as Chilu alluded, we get these sort of vague responses from national government sometimes that don't, that don't allow policy certainty. And I think that's where we have to try and really clarify and, and make it much easier and cleaner for average residential customers as well as big commercial customers to to take up different technologies like solar PV, for example. And then the the role that City plays in so many of these areas is this equitable response. So we need to make sure that the entire customer 
you know, the customer body is is re, is all getting energy or getting services in an equitable way. And part of that, for example, on the electricity side is your access to the grid and paying for the grid maintenance. So I think, you know, again, those tariffs and having to explain to people how the tariffs are structured so that you're paying your portion of the grids, the grid maintenance, that's really important as well. And quite a challenge because people don't actually want to want to hear that. But I think it's it's an important another important part of the the education side of things. In terms of what Megan mentioned, and, and I think that that question also comes into who pays for it. So if we do need electricity grid upgrades, who pays for it and where does that money come from? And so in a lot of these conversations, we've been focusing on the developers and how they will pay for um, a net zero carbon future. But I think there are questions within the municipality is how will how will we pay for a net zero carbon future when our infrastructure needs to be significantly changed or upgraded? So I think those are also important um, financial questions that we have to discuss and and think about. Yeah, and, and sorry, just one last thing. Megan, Megan brought up the energy performance certificates or the EPCs. And I really think that that is a crucial step in the right direction. And it's a, an area of work that we're um, focusing on to get the city's buildings compliant. And it really sends a, a signal that we have to measure and monitor what we're doing. We have to disclose our performance of our buildings. And it starts training customers to make those choices about this fridge versus that fridge. And the EPC actually looks exactly like those fridge stickers. So I think, you know, we've already got a visualization of what that should look like. So hopefully it's a quite an easy transition that people will very quickly be able to choose one office space or one apartment over another. We've got a way to go before that kind of filters down to the residential market, but I definitely think it's a, it's a, it's a great push from national government and something that we are supporting and, and pushing from our side as well. And Leslie, I guess the other role that the city is probably playing and is taking a great interest in is around data. What is the city busy with in terms of uh, tracking data and, and for what purpose? So mostly the data that we track is in relation to in its energy consumption data and then also data from our small-scale embedded generation uh, program as well. So the data that we have is obviously we can access all the data for uh, a citywide but I think some of the focus will be was split in two. So first, for the SA Buildings program, we obviously needed energy consumption data to help formulate the policy and to help with the decision-making process in terms of like what sectors would be relevant in terms of like, you know, the policy initiatives that we're doing. So came back to what Megan was saying in terms of like, does the net zero carbon policy speak to all sectors and how do we bring in the low-income households into it? So using the data that we had, the energy consumption data, uh, we're able to establish a baseline for Cape Town and then also for all the other cities. This has allowed us to be able to determine how we prioritize the different building types uh, within within the policy unit. But then the, we also had just general green building data that we got from the Green Building Council. And with this data, we're able to build a business case of what it is that we are proposing with the net zero carbon policy. And we were able to show that, you know, energy efficiency is the benefits of it are realized from day one. 
And then we're also able to see in which of the sectors would renewable energy in the form of rooftop PV, for instance, um, would make sense. And so through that data or the findings of that, we're then able to have targeted responses for the different sector. And then for our own buildings, we obviously track our energy consumption through the smart facilities. So for all our municipal buildings, we are able to track the energy consumption and water consumption of those buildings. And what that data has been able to help us do is to try and see which are the buildings that are performing badly. And so we then start to prioritize those. So we have got more impact in the reductions that we want to achieve. So that data has been really useful in that. And it's also going to help us now with with the EPCs, the Energy Performance Certificates regulations that came in, in that we're already monitoring and measuring. So it's going to be quite easier for the city to then be in compliance with the energy performance certificates. So that data has enabled us to do that. And it also just helps us in, you know, decision-making, especially when it comes to what projects we need to prioritize. Chilo, Megan, any any thoughts on what you've heard around this, this part of the conversation around city responding, city looking at data? I think, you know, I think data is, is really the, the key to, to net zero because often we don't, a lot of people don't know how far away you are from the performance that you actually need and, and whether or not it's achievable. But we've got literally hundreds of thousands of buildings that, that, that contain the data that you would know to see how far, how far off it is. So, I mean, it's, it's great to, to see that the cities, um, city, particularly Cape Town, is looking at the data quite closely to see what they can work out from it and, and everything like that. But like I said previously, you know, we need a uniformity of approach from the cities so that we can see across the country what the real opportunity is and where the challenge is going to come and whether or not that data can really drive this process. You know, we go through a rigorous or a very long process every couple of years to look at SANS benchmarks. And it's always theoretical. You know, there's nothing that comes from like, here is a thousand buildings in the city. This is what they actually use. I think data is really the, the key to this whole thing. Yeah, so, uh, so it's very encouraging to hear that, uh, that the Cape Town is already doing a lot of the crucial groundwork to lay the foundation for net zero carbon. Another ask from the financial sector often has been just quantifying the costs associated with the transition to net zero carbon. So for a representative new building, in each of the different segments across the economy, what does it actually mean um, for that building to reach net zero carbon? And what are the associated costs, whether they're the capital costs, whether they're attached uh, certification costs, for example, if it's going to be edge net, net zero carbon certified or uh, seek an energy performance certificate, for example. So actually just very clearly and concisely setting out what, you know, sort of demystifying net zero carbon, if you like, and setting out what that typically means. So what that allows then is for any key stakeholder involved in decision-making to start um, calculating the implications for financing this transition and then also starting to evaluate what the likely benefits will be and how, you know, at what stage they would break even. So how many savings would they need to see to justify 
that additional investment up front. So just uh, in addition to all of the conceptual work and the base learning and so on, just, uh, just you know, becoming very concrete and specific to, to quantify um, the impact and describe the impact on a typical new building design and getting that out into the public domain so that we can all speak about it. Because if we don't speak about it, um, if we don't acknowledge the extra complexity and cost, then, uh, then the, the prevailing perception is that this is firstly too complex to do and secondly too, com- too costly to do. So it serves as this significant barrier to, to the transition. So I think just getting very specific and clear on the changes that are required and the implications for typical um, designs and building budgets is, is really important. And what's encouraging, certainly what we've seen overseas, is that that additional capital cost tends to fall over time. So we can acknowledge that there's a cost implication now, but we can also point to international evidence that as um, as designers and developers become more familiar with net zero carbon and as the supply base expands locally, that we'll see that premium drop in and then it'll probably come within one or two percent of the total building envelope. And when we're there, then we're pretty much at parity. You know, that's uh, that's where solar PV is at the moment in terms of, of competition with typical business tariffs and it's driving a significant um, transition in, in energy usage. So I think that's um, that's quite important. And then secondly, just starting to think about how the municipality can also play quite a central role in shifting and shaping incentives within within the city. So you know, it's not necessarily just about uh, just about incentivizing adoption of renewable energy through SECG incentives as as are currently being implemented in Cape Town but also starting to think about how to share some of the value of a broader net zero carbon transformation with developers of these buildings, um, whether the developer is an individual or corporate or a kind of mid-sized property developer. So what are the, the positive impacts that extend to the city and to the local economy from that net zero carbon transition and how can one embark on a value sharing arrangement and then to find that, also starting to think about how to start disincentivizing building brown buildings. So, um, so there are still buildings being built which are not in conformity with SANS 2400XA. Um, and there are buildings which are going to emerge as very poorly rated once the EPC system is properly functioning. Can we start to disincentivize the continued operation of those buildings through making it more attractive for, for those building owners to make the transition as well. They're starting to think about, about the city as being kind of a, a living, breathing organism which is responding to these guiding incentives and disincentives and really not just thinking about regulations but also thinking about incentives to start to do things differently because that's often a lot easier to digest than kind of new prescription in terms of how buildings need to be built. Megan, you make a really great point about needing to understand the cost premium on net zero carbon and be transparent about that. And I think in our own buildings, the city of Cape Town, it's it's come as, as a major challenge because we have 
ambitious targets. We have beautiful buildings that we want to push through. And then we have these very strict kind of financial hurdles that we have to overcome come. And the questions that are asked at those hurdles are very kind of old school questions. And I think there's two sides of the coin. The one is understanding these cost premiums and what actually is a what is a premium and what is, should be standard practice. So we're actually looking at doing a study of our own green buildings and understanding what the cost premium is on those buildings and, you know, how, how do they pay themselves off? And those kind of questions that our, our financial colleagues are asking. So really getting to grips with the numbers so that we can provide good answers to those questions. But I think it's also important to educate the gatekeepers of those processes as to the benefits that go beyond just the rands and cents. And I think, you know, I'm thinking of the indoor environmental quality of better performance in your workforce and kind of happier people because they can see views and have fresh air. So I think we need to educate both sides and, and, and have the tools that can, can cross that sort of language divide, as it were. And one, I had a really interesting conversation recently with a senior person at Deloitte, and they've just moved into a fantastic building at the waterfront that's naturally ventilated for over 80% of the year. And for them as a commercial company, it was about taking a leap of faith, but it was taking that leap of faith with other partners. And I think that's one of the key lessons here is that we've got to find the right partners. And then at some point, we do have to take some of these leaps of faith. As the city, we need to provide a platform that those leaps can be made in a sort of de-risked environment as far as possible. And then finally, we've also got to change the way in which we do business and not just play the role of a kind of bureaucratic electricity retailing entity, but be much more of a trader, facilitator, engaged sort of city player. So I think that's that's the future that we're heading to. And of course, it's it's all about partnerships. And so it's great to yeah, to be discussing these things with with your your teams as well. Klingiwe, you've been quiet this evening, but taking, I'm sure, copious notes and uh, reflecting on the conversation. Any thoughts from your side, Klingi, as we begin to work towards a, a wrap and a summary? I think I've just been listening so much because everyone has had so much to, to say. But uh, just to, to add, what, uh, just to uh, maybe summarize what everyone was saying, I think it's important that we had private sector and public sector today discussing these issues because we really do need them to start discussing. And also, I think there were challenges that were raised, but what was more important for me was that those challenges are being addressed both by the city and by the private sector. I think Mary also touched on the fact that a lot of this also needs to be made aware to the public. Public needs to understand what net zero carbon is. Examples of these situations are, uh, need to be made available to people. Uh, I think Solid Green already having worked with examples of like 100, over 100 buildings in, already showing how this can be done is quite good for, uh, for the public sector. To support the, uh, what cities are doing in, in raising awareness, we have created a smart buildings uh, um, website that people can go into that also explains this work further, that explains the policies that are in, in place of renewable energy as to how it gets, uh, impacts uh, net zero carbon and, and what the cities are doing with, with their policies. So if people want to learn further about what, uh, what we're talking about today, they can go to the smart buildings, uh, uh, smart buildings website. People can just visit smartbuildings.org.za. 
but thank you so much to the guests for for helping us uh, uh, to discuss this uh, this um, discussions today. Let's just clarify uh, Solid Green's contact details. Chilo, how do people find out more about the work that you've done? And uh, I mentioned the website right up front. Um, where can people find out more from your side? Yeah, I think if you just uh, Google uh, Solid Green, we've got a, a pretty efficient propaganda machine for the most part. But um, yeah, the website is, is solidgreen.co.za. Um, and then we've got a, a contact email address, which is hello at, at Solid Green, or emailing me directly, which is um, chilu at, at Solid Green. Fantastic. And uh, Megan, do you have a propaganda machine down at Sustainable Solutions or do you have a website as well? <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, uh, we don't have any, uh, any propaganda machines, I'm afraid, but uh, we, we have a, a, a very brief website which you can check out at sustainablesolutions.coza. People are welcome to email me at megan at sustainablesolutions.coza or in fact to, uh, to, to pop in for a cup of coffee. We're in Claremont. Yeah, we're, we're very excited about uh, the, the Greek building transition and finding creative ways to overcoming some of these challenges we've spoken about tonight. So we believe that none of these issues are insurmountable and, and that this is not really optional. So we think that indeed public and private sectors working together can find um, some really exciting solutions to these challenges. Pete, there's a lot of great resources, obviously, on the city's website as well. But the Cape Town Future Energy Festival is a fantastic hub of great resources. So that's capetownfutureenergyfestival.coza. And you can see a, a immersive virtual walkthrough of the, the clean green home. So it's a great place to start. And then there's also information there about any other events that we're holding. Although the festival is coming to a close in the next few months, but it's still a great resource. And we're hoping that we can continue to use some of the resources developed there. Before we say goodnight and goodbye and thank you, Lengiwe, perhaps you'd like to tell us about our final, fourth, fourth and final uh, part of the series and then the actual webinar that will follow that as a, a fifth additional bonus episode. Our next episode comes in May, uh, beginning of May. It follows, it touches on what uh, people are speaking about today. I think Leslie and Mary and Megan touched a lot around low-income households. Uh, the next episode will deep dive into how, how are we ensuring that the low-income households and uh, the poor are not left behind as we create old buildings or ensure that all new buildings and current buildings are, are, are made uh, unnecessary carbon. So the next episode will really touch on that and Leslie will be joining us again. So that, that will be great continuity. And then the final episode, which will be on the 27th of May, we bring back all of our speakers. So all the speakers from episode one, two, and three, and four Will, will join us and they'll be answering all the questions that people have so far. So if anyone has questions, please um, uh, start sending them through and our guest speakers will, will respond, uh, respond to them. Uh, you can find out about how to, uh, to uh, join the web, webinar through our social med uh, med media uh, network. So you can follow Sustainable Energy Africa on Twitter and LinkedIn and we'll have the details of how you can join uh, the, we the webinar. Uh, but again, thank you to everyone for joining and thank you, Pitt, for hosting us. Thank you. Absolute pleasure as always. It's always a pleasure to have the colleagues on the Talking Transformation podcast. And many thanks to all of you for, for playing your role in the public sector and the private sector represented this evening. Enjoy the rest of the evening, colleagues. Look after yourself. Speak to you soon. 
Thank you very much. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Pete. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please engage with us and let us know your thoughts on this episode. You can do so via the Anchor podcast platform. There's a voice message function available via the app. You can also follow us on Twitter via Talking Transfo and the number one. So Talking Transfo one. Our theme music is kindly made available by Tribal Need. Find out about the music, the street art shows here in Cape Town and Europe via tribalneed.com.